comfortable to unpack these things, but these are the necessary conversations. What more action has she taken since then? I mean, she doesn't get into that, but it's like giving space to someone else who can actually talk about their experience firsthand. But it's like different things like that where they leave me without one a solution. This is wrong. This is racism. What is the real work that needs to be done moving forward? Like, how do you unpack that? I would say that I've always been pretty conscious of my surroundings, either in walking to or from school as a kid, but I do think it was probably around the fourth grade when I became hyper aware of the various changes going on in my neighborhood, especially in taking notice of the increasing fences in the area. These fences were a signal of the large construction sites going on in the span of about three or four blocks, and the fact that new and what seemed to me um, to be random stores such as bakeries and dog daycares were entering the area at the expense of longtime family-owned businesses such as community libraries. Even at that point, I was still trying to make sense of what all these changes meant for me and my community and my family. My friends and I were talking about the things going on in our neighborhood, especially apartment renovations, as we saw them as a positive force because we thought it meant our families would have better housing and living circumstances. Sarah Lee's observations and sentiments are shared by many who experience gentrification in their neighborhoods. Longtime residents often first notice changes in storefronts. Neighborhood joints, affordable grocery stores, places where family or friends work, suddenly become fancy coffee shops or expensive restaurants. Families have also observed better resource availability when white families move in. Suddenly, there are more summer activities and better neighborhood security. Heightened security should make us pause, considering the well-documented harm of police presence in black and brown neighborhoods. Who are these new resources really serving? And how does gentrification impact one of the most important neighborhood resources for families? Schools. To explore this question, Sarah Lee, who went to school in East Harlem, and Amelia, who went to school on the Upper West Side, sat down to talk about their educational experiences in an area said to be undergoing the process of gentrification. This trend can be best measured by the increasing educational attainment among new neighbors, aka gentrifiers, as education is one of the strongest indicators of class gentrification. Considering housing prices on the open market in Harlem have soared by 247% in the past 10 years, gentrification here is rapid and severe. Before we get into the relationship between gentrification and schools, let's look briefly into the history of gentrification in the Harlem and Morningside Heights neighborhoods as it relates to an educational institution that our podcasters are fairly familiar with, Columbia University. So, Columbia University has been a huge gentrifying presence in Harlem. Let's start in 1947, when David Rockefeller and some Mohai Manhattanville nonprofits founded Morningside Heights, Inc., a group that acted in the real estate interests of Columbia University and its partners. Two years later, the group formed Remedco, a corporation to act jointly for Morningside Heights, Inc. in real estate matters. In February 1951, Morningside Heights, Inc. worked with the Mayor's Committee for Slum Clearance for the redevelopment of Mohai, Manhattanville. 
There was opposition to this, more accurately termed dispossession. After buying up more real estate throughout the early 1960s for new specialized schools at the university, Columbia attempted to put forward plans to build a gym in Morningside Park. This was met with intense student and neighborhood resistance, and over 700 arrests were made in the student-involved protests. One black activist urged Harlemites to burn it down if construction went underway. The university abandoned the project in March of 69. In the early 1980s, Columbia purchased the Audubon Ballroom, the site of Malcolm X's assassination, with plans to demolish the historic building and replace it with a medical research facility. Community activists and students protested, and a quote-unquote compromise was reached under which a substantial portion of the site was retained as a memorial to Malcolm X. Columbia's encroachment into Harlem through the acquisition of historic and valuable land and buildings continues today with the institution's controversial Manhattanville expansion. An adequate investigation into the repeated attempts of Columbia to take over Harlem property and land could be an entire podcast series. What we really want to focus on in this episode are the schooling experiences of students in the Morningside Heights and Harlem neighborhoods. Though, as you will see, these experiences are closely linked with Columbia University and its efforts to expand. Hey, Sarah Lee, so you went to PS38, right? Yeah, I went to PS38 up until around fifth grade. Um, the school was in East Harlem, where I've lived my entire life, basically. What about you? What school did you go to? Uh, I actually went to the school at Columbia. Uh, it was probably about a mile away from where I lived on the Upper West Side. Was the school at Columbia specifically for faculty at Columbia, or could anyone apply or go to the school? That's actually a really good question, So, because it's, it's kind of weird. So the school at Columbia, it was made in 2003 as a recruiting tactic for, uh, for Columbia faculty members, actually. Um, there's even two different application processes, which is weird. Um, I'm pretty sure it's 50% Columbia faculty and then they say 50% neighborhood or community families. Like that's the term that they use. So for Columbia families, there's actually this Columbia University primary tuition scholarship benefit, lots of words, which means that your kids can go to the School of Columbia for 50% off, which is pretty important when the tuition is $52,000 a year. So Columbia faculty families can also live anywhere in the city. However, neighborhood or community families can only come from public school districts three or five. They also have to go through a lottery process to get into the school, which is different from Columbia faculty families. I even think that the, the mission statement for the school is to provide an excellent education to a diverse student body, um, which I think is kind of revealing about the institution's weak commitment to integration. Because I feel like diversity, community, and collaboration, they're sort of coded language for how the school opts into diversity when it's convenient for them. Do you feel that diversity was actually present within the school? So, I, I mean, I, I honestly do, um, just because of the difference in attending that school, um, in between that and then I went to a private school for high school. Uh, and the school at Columbia was diverse in a way of having many different students from many different backgrounds but it is still like 47% white, which is interesting because it's 50% faculty members, which are pro predominantly white. Um, but I think that the school was advertising diversity in kind of a weird way that's not truly representative of the actual school's demographics. 
It also seems a little suspicious that 47% is so close to 50% as well. Yeah, definitely agreed. What was the demographic breakdown of PS38 in the East Harlem School? I felt like I was very much surrounded by kids who came from similar backgrounds and looked like me. Uh, they were all mostly from East Harlem, Latinx, and Black families, and very little white families, if any at all. Uh, the neighborhood demographics were reflected in the school demographics. As for the East Harlem school, these school demographics were about the same as my previous school, PS38, and a majority of the East Harlem school students were from the neighborhood, but a few of them even came from the Bronx or even as far as Staten Island. The racial and class makeup of schools is often determined by school enrollment practices. Principals are key players in managing school enrollment and related marketing. These marketing techniques can often be seen on school media pages. In looking at the website for the school at Columbia, it seems a bit confusing for people with no connection to the school or Columbia to actually understand the process or how you would even apply to the school especially with it being two different processes for Columbia faculty and neighborhood families. I think this makes it a little less accessible, accessible for people who do not have that faculty connection. For example, when I was in middle school, I didn't even know what Columbia was or that they existed near my neighborhood. Yeah, no, the two different application processes and the names of the two groups, the, like the neighborhood kids or families and then the Columbia families, it feels very separated. Um, in regards to tuition and financial aid, the school says that a lot of families qualify for an extensive program of university-supported tuition, remission, or need-based financial aid. But Columbia University families automatically receive 50% off of schooling, yet neighborhood families have to apply for this financial aid. And in terms of accessibility of knowledge about applying, it's definitely a lot more clear for Columbia families. You're totally right. And I could also imagine that for low-income families, especially reading the website and like hearing about the various processes of financial aid and even admissions, it would make them think, oh, even am I even going to get any financial aid, um, which completely cuts out a whole number of people and families who would apply or think to apply. Sarah Lee is getting to a really crucial point in the conversation surrounding education and gentrification, school choice. Who knows about the school options? And what resources do they have to make informed decisions about applying to a new school? What does all that mean for each family who has different kinds of access to information? Sarah Lee, were there changes in school options as more white, middle to upper class families entered your neighborhood? There was such a prominent growth in schools within a few years and even within the same three to five blocks of my walk to and from PS38. The school had been previously viewed as the only choice in the area for middle school education, and it felt like almost everybody I knew or was close to did go to PS38. And if anything, I think to not attend PS38 was kind of viewed as the weird <laughs> or odd option. Um, the admission process was like relatively accessible. Um, I think most parents just needed to provide maybe birth certificates or any other just, you know, documents that were important and then the school would make space for any incoming students. Uh, there wasn't much active search for other schooling options from neighborhood families, but once I was entering fourth grade, there was much more noticeable movement out of PS38. The movement out was also tied to families being displaced and forced to move into new schools, or sorry. The movement out was also tied to families being displaced and forced to move elsewhere, 
whereas some long-term families were beginning to feel the pressure of looking into the new schools in the area and began applying elsewhere, which I think is also tied to the fact that certain white middle to upper class families were sending their kids to new schools which popped up either charter or private, but also even attending schools outside of the area. I always questioned why, why are my educational opportunities suddenly rising when these new families arrive? Is it that my worth as a student of color who is low income is tied to these new gentrifying families? In reflecting back on this time in East Harlem, I can't help but think that these changes all happen just one day to another, but it also really was a very gradual and intentional process from city officials, real estate, and other actors. Research supports Lee's critical observation of better educational opportunities arising once gentrifiers move in. Greater choice over schooling has been found to cater to white parents while taking away services from children of color. Choice not only upholds white privilege, it has also been found to make schools more segregated by economic, ethnic, and ability factors. When gentrifiers move in, it normally unfolds like this. New families either do not have kids or choose to send their children to schools outside of the neighborhood, like charter or private schools. As lower income families are being pushed out by gentrifiers, the neighborhood schools drop in enrollment. With lower enrollment, these local schools receive less funding, which can negatively impact the academic achievement of poorer students. Research in Chicago public schools found that an increase in neighborhood household income, meaning the arrival of gentrifiers, led to lower than average increases in math and reading test scores for predominantly low-income third-grade students. Using measures of student achievement, like graduation rates or standardized test scores, to measure the impacts of gentrification is one way to see how gentrification produces inequitable schooling. Another important factor to consider is school resources, which are closely tied to school funding. Do you feel like your school was particularly well-funded? Was this related to association to Columbia? I didn't actually realize when I was growing up how well-funded the school was, but it definitely was. Like looking back I, and thinking about like the athletic programs or the after-school programs or band, I mean, just the fact that everyone was given an instrument. I was given an alto saxophone for a while, just like given it. And everyone had these amazing opportunities. For athletics, we had this connection with Columbia that made it so that we could practice and play at Baker's Field. So as like fifth graders, we were just like playing on college D1 fields, just like farting around. I actually had like, I definitely had the best funded athletic program of my entire life in elementary school, which was just unnecessary. What were the resources like at PS38? Before fourth grade, I had bands and after-school programs, fairs and plays and, you know, various things that you would think are associated to school. Um, I was really happy at PS38, and it wasn't until a charter school entered the space and there was a lot of defunding of the public school itself following that. Um, my mom brought up transferring after fourth grade because she was concerned about the quality of the education I was getting there. And there was also just less access to extracurricular activities and even just outside space for for recess. We also had much less space for classes themselves as the, as the school building was split into one floor being PS38 and then the top floor was the charter school. My mom made the decision to have me apply to the East Harlem School, which was actually just right across the block from PS38. And at first I didn't want to change because that's changed schools because that, that had been where my sisters attended. Um, everywhere, everyone I knew and was close with was in that school. But at some point I also agreed with her. 
some of my friends continue to be in PS38, but I know a good amount of them did leave and either go to charter school or the East Harlem school or just other schools in the East Harlem area and outside as well that were popping up. Looking into charter and private schools is far from straightforward. Knowledge about schools and application processes often travels by word of mouth and functions as a form of largely inaccessible social capital. The availability of this information is unequal across socioeconomic classes. How did you and your family make decisions about moving schools? What information did you trust? My school nurse actually helped me in some ways, such as providing me with a letter of recommendation and other necessary paperwork. She was someone who helped convince me to make the switch as my mom had heard a lot of good things from her and other community members about the school. And my parents did not know much about the process, honestly, because both of my sisters had both gone to public school throughout their entire life. The language barrier was difficult as well. I was translating for, I was translate, I was translating for my parents when I was trying to apply to the East Harlem School. There's also certain privileges I held in having additional support from PS38 staff throughout the process. And I sometimes think how this switch from public to private schools would have gone for other students in public schools as resources and support greatly vary across schools. Sometimes families don't know that there's other school choices than the one that's closest to you or your zone school. And even those outside choices are difficult to enter as some students don't have access to the resources to get into the schools. Even between the two geographically close schools, Amelia and Sarah Lee demonstrated the huge gap in funding and resources that can exist between public and charter schools, or between public schools. In a study from September 2020, sociologists Jacqueline Wong and Lei Ding found that, and I quote, gentrification in the 21st century is fundamentally structured by racial stratification and reconfiguring the urban landscape in ways that exacerbate neighborhood inequality by race and class. It should be clear by now that gentrification has strong negative impacts on children who grow up in an environment in which they are becoming increasingly unwelcome. But the issues of school resources and housing resources are even more closely linked than just that. In an article discussing a school that uses two-way bilingual education programming, educational researchers Hyman and Murakami said that, quote, as the program became a magnet for privileged populations from the neighborhood, along with transfer students from all over the city, the affordable housing options began to diminish for the Latina community. Housing and public schooling are inextricably linked for children in the United States, and Harlem Morningside Heights is just one neighborhood in which that's evident. We hope this episode has made you think about the role of educational institutions, whether they be universities, public schools, or private schools, in the gentrification process. A question you might still be wondering is who is really responsible for gentrification, and how do we hold them accountable for their harm? As you might recall, at the beginning of this episode, we discussed how Columbia University was able to, let's put it correctly, colonize areas of Harlem by working with wealthy developers. Columbia is not the only powerful body to work with real estate Mongols. The New York City government has a history of working with developers to rezone affordable areas into luxury apartments for retail space. Take the Harlem 125th Street 
revitalization, as the city called it. The influx of chain stores and expensive housing was framed as a new Harlem, but really just made the street more white and commercial. Just think of the Whole Foods on West 125th. This doesn't mean that the wealthy white families who moved into Sara Lee's neighborhood are absolved of responsibility. They're still complicit in state-sponsored gentrification, ignorant of their white privilege, and contributing to white supremacy. Gentrification and the changes it brings upon many communities, changes which we discussed throughout this episode, are intentional outcomes. These systems of socioeconomic and racial oppression are meant to work in a way that benefits white middle to upper class people by framing dispossession as their own development. But with gentrification, there often come new schools with newer computers or quote-unquote community scholarships. That's what makes gentrification such a fraught issue. It means so many things to different people. When challenging these systems that disadvantage and oppress young students of color through community organizing, legislature, or other modes of resistance, it's important to remember the stories and histories of those who have been displaced. This episode was created, written, and produced by Grace Brennan, Maya Esberg, Amelia Milne, and Sarah Lee Vargas for Barnard College's Puzzling It All Together podcast. Special thanks to Amelia and Sarah Lee for sharing their personal stories with us. Research by Grace Brennan and Maya Esberg. We found our information from Peter Moskowitz's How to Kill a City, Lance Freeman's There Goes the Hood, an article from Humanity in Action called Gentrification and Displacement in Harlem, Elena Vaughn's article, The Color of Money, School Funding and the Commodification of Black Children, Keels et al., The Effects of Gentrification on Neighborhood Public Schools, Jacqueline Wong and Lei Ding's Unequal Displacement, and Daniel Hyman and Elizabeth Murakami's School Administrators' Responses to the Gentrification of a Two-Way Bilingual Education Program in Central Texas, as well as Columbia University's web-based timeline, and a New York Times interview with Ray Tirado titled Why He's Holding Out in East Harlem Despite the Gentrification from YouTube. Thanks for listening.